Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Alien Earth by Edmund Hamilton. This short story is a classic of SF that first appeared in the April 1949 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories. It has seldom been reprinted since that time. I remember reading it a very long time ago in the Great SF Stories Volume Number 11, Stories of 1949, which came out in 1984. In other words, this story really isn't remembered very well. I only remembered it recently after watching one of the episodes of The Secret Life of Plants, a documentary by David Attenborough, and watching the amazing stop-motion footage of growing weeds invading and taking over a garden. It reminded me that plant life lives on an entirely different scale of time than animals, but that they can be just as dangerous. Apparently, Hamilton realized this many decades ago. This quote from SF aficionado James Wallace Harris perfectly describes the same feeling I got about the story, especially the fact that it seemed decades ahead of itself in terms of style. Quote, I don't know why Alien Earth is not better remembered because I found it very readable and compelling. I can't describe much of the story without creating spoilers, but let's say it reminds me of the stories of Carlos Castaneda I read back in my New Age phase in the late 1970s. It deals with states of consciousness and could easily have been popular during the new wave period of science fiction back in the 1960s. And now, Alien Earth. Chapter 1. Slowed Down Life The dead man was standing in a little moonlit clearing in the jungle when Ferris found him. He was a small, swart man in white cotton, a typical Laotian tribesman of this Indochina hinterland. He stood without support, eyes open, staring unwinkingly ahead, one foot slightly raised. He was not breathing. But he can't be dead, Ferris exclaimed. Dead men don't stand around in the jungle. He was interrupted by Piang, his guide. That cocksure little Annamese had been losing his imprudent self-sufficiency ever since they had wandered off the trail, and the motionless, standing dead man had completed his demoralization. Ever since the two of them had stumbled into this grove of silk cotton trees and almost run into the dead man, Piang had been goggling in a scared way at the still unmoving figure. Now he burst out volubly. The man is Hunati. Don't touch him. We must leave him here. We have strayed into a bad part of the jungle. Ferris didn't budge. He had been a teak hunter for too many years to be entirely skeptical of the superstitions of Southeast Asia. But on the other hand, he felt a certain responsibility. If this man isn't really dead, then he's in bad shape somehow and we need to help him, he declared. No, no! He is Hunati! Let us leave here quickly! Piang insisted. Pale with fright, he looked around the moonlit grove. They were on a low plateau where the jungle was monsoon forest rather than rainforest. The big silk cotton and ficus trees were less choked with brush and creepers here, and they could see along the dim forest aisles the gigantic distant banyans that loomed like dark lords of the silver silence. Silence. There was too much of it to be natural. 
they could faintly hear the usual clatter of birds and monkeys from down in the lowland thickets, and the cough of a tiger echoed from the Laos foothills. But the thick forest here on the plateau was hushed. Ferris went to the motionless staring tribesman and gently touched his thin brown wrist. For a few moments he felt no pulse, but then he caught a throb, an incredibly slow beating. About one beat every two minutes, Ferris muttered. How in the devil could he keep living? He watched the man's bare chest. It rose, but so slowly that his eye could hardly detect the motion. It remained expanded for minutes. Then, as slowly, it fell again. He took his pocket light and flashed it into the tribesman's eyes. There was no reaction to the light, not at first. Then, slowly, the eyelids crept down and closed, and stay closed, and finally crept open again. That was a wink, but a hundred times slower than normal, Ferris exclaimed. Pulse, respiration, reactions, they're all a hundred times slower. The man has either suffered a shock or been drugged. Then he noticed something that gave him a little chill. The tribesman's eyeball seemed to be turning with infinite slowness toward him. And the man's raised foot was a little higher now, as though he were walking, but walking at a pace a hundred times slower than normal. The whole thing was eerie. There came something more eerie then. A sound. The sound of a small stick cracking. Piang exhaled breath in a sound of pure fright and pointed off into the grove. In the moonlight, Ferris saw. There was another tribesman standing a hundred feet away. He too was motionless, but his body was bent forward in the attitude of a runner suddenly frozen. And beneath his foot, the stick had cracked. They worship the great ones by the change, said the Anamese in a hoarse undertone. We must not interfere. That decided Ferris. He had apparently stumbled on some sort of weird jungle rite, and he had too much experience with the Asiatic natives to want to blunder into their private religious mysteries. His business here in easternmost Indochina was teak hunting, which would be difficult enough back in this wild hinterland without antagonizing the tribes. These strangely dead-alive men, whatever drug or compulsion they were suffering from, could not be in danger if others were near. "'Well, go on, then,' said Ferris shortly. Piang led hastily down the slope of the forested plateau. He went through the brush like a scared deer, till they hit the trail again. "'This is it, the path to the government station,' he said in great relief. We must have lost it back at the ravine. I have not been this far into Laos many times. Ferris asked. Piang, what is Hunadi, this change you were talking about? The guide became instantly less voluble. It is a rite of worship, he added, with some return of his cocksureness. These tribes are not very ignorant. They have not been to mission school as I have. Worship of what? Ferris asked. The great ones, you said? Who are they? Piang shrugged and lied readily. I do not know. 
In all the great forests, there are men who can become Hunati, it is said. How I do not know. Ferris pondered as he tramped onward. There was something uncanny about those tribesmen. It had been almost a suspension of animation, but not quite. Only an incredible slowing down. What could have caused that? And what possibly could be the purpose of it? I should think, he said, that a tiger or a snake would make short work of a man in that frozen condition. Piang shook his head vigorously. No, a man who is Hunati is safe, at least from the beasts. No beast would touch him. Ferris wondered, was that because the extreme motionless made the beasts ignore them? He supposed it was some kind of fear-written nature worship. Such animistic beliefs were common in this part of the world, and it was small wonder, Ferris thought a little grimly. Nature here in the tropical forest wasn't the smiling goddess of temperate lands. It was something not to be loved, but to be feared. He ought to know. He'd had two days of the Laos jungle since leaving the upper Mekong, when he had expected that one would take him to the French government botanic survey station that was his goal. He brushed stinging winged ants from his sweating neck and wished that they had stopped at sunset. But the map showed them that they were just a few miles from the station. He had not counted on Piang losing the trail, but he should have, for it was only a wretched little track that wound around the forested slope of the plateau. The hundred-foot ficus, dyewood, and silk cotton trees smothered the moonlight. The track twisted constantly to avoid impenetrable bamboo hells, or to ford small streams, and the tangle of creepers and vines had a devilish deafness at tripping them in the dark. Ferris wondered if they had lost their way again, and he wondered not for the first time why he had ever left America to go into Teak. That is the station, said Piang suddenly, in obvious relief. Just ahead of them on the jungled slope was a flat ledge. Light shone there from the windows of a rambling bamboo bungalow. Ferris became conscious of all his accumulated weariness as he went the last few yards. He wondered whether he could get a decent bed here, and what kind of chap this Barreau might be who had chosen to bury himself in such a godforsaken post of the botanical survey. The bamboo house was surrounded by tall, graceful dyewoods, but the moonlight showed a garden around it, enclosed by a low, sapan hedge. A voice from the dark veranda reached Ferris and startled him. It startled him because it was a girl's voice, speaking in French. Please, Pierre, don't go again. It is madness. A man's voice rapped a harsh answer. Liste à toi. Je reviendrai. Ferris coughed diplomatically and then set up to the darkness of the veranda. Monsieur Barreau? There was dead silence. Then the door of the house swung open so that light spilled out on Ferris and his guide. By the light, Ferris saw a man of thirty, bareheaded in whites, a thin, rigid figure. The girl was only a white blur in the gloom. He climbed the steps. I suppose you don't get many visitors. My name is Hugh Ferris. I have a letter for you from the Bureau at Saigon. There was a pause. Then, if you will come inside, Monsieur Ferris. 
In the lamplit, bamboo-walled living room, Ferris glanced quickly at the two. Berot looked to his experienced eye like a man who had stayed too long in the tropics, his blonde handsomeness tarnished by a corroding climate, his eyes too feverish and restless. My sister, Lise, he said as he took the letter Ferris handed him. Ferris's surprise increased. He had supposed that she was a wife. Why would a girl under thirty bury herself in this wilderness? He wasn't surprised that she looked unhappy. She might have been a decently pretty girl, he thought, if she didn't have the woe-begone anxious look about her. Will you have a drink, monsieur? she asked him, and then glancing with swift anxiety at her brother. You'll not be going now, André. Berot looked out at the moonlit forest, and a queer, hungry tautness showed his cheekbones in a way Ferris didn't like. But the Frenchman turned back. No, Lise, and drinks, please, and then tell Arad to care for his guide. He read the letter swiftly as Ferris sank with a sigh into a rattan chair. He looked up from it with troubled eyes. So you have come for Tic? Ferris nodded. Only to spot and girdle trees. They have to stand a few years then before being cut, you know. Perrault said, The commissioner writes that I am to give you every assistance. He explains the necessity of opening up new tick cuttings. He slowly folded the letter. It was obvious, Ferris thought, that the man did not like it, but had to make the best of the orders. I shall do everything possible to head, Perrault promised. You'll want a native crew, I suppose. I can get you one. Then a queer look filled his eyes. But there are some forests here that are impractical for lumbering. I'll go into that later. Ferris, feeling every moment more exhausted by the long tramp, was grateful for the rum and soda that Lise handed him. We have a small extra room. I think it would be comfortable, she murmured. He thanked her. I could sleep on a log, I'm so tired. My muscles are as stiff as though I were one of them Hunati myself. Burrow's glass dropped with a sudden crash. Chapter 2 Sorcery of Science Ignoring the shattered glass, the young Frenchman strode quickly toward Ferris. What do you know of Hunati? he asked harshly. Ferris saw with astonishment that the man's hands were shaking. I don't know anything except what we saw in the forest. Came upon a man standing in the moonlight who looked dead and wasn't. He just seemed incredibly slowed down. Piang said he was Hunati. A flash crossed Perot's eyes. He exclaimed, I knew the rat would be cold. And the others are there. He checked himself. It was though the unaccustomedness of strangers had made him for a moment forget Ferris's presence. Lisa's blonde head drooped. She looked away from Ferris. You were saying? the American prompted. But Barreau had tightened up. He chose his words carefully now. The Laos tribes have some queer beliefs, Monsieur Ferris. They are a little hard to understand. Ferris shrugged. I've seen some queer Asian witchcraft in my time, but that, that was unbelievable. It is science, not witchcraft, Barrow corrected. 
primitive science, born long ago and transmitted by tradition. That man you saw in the forest was under the influence of a chemical not found in our pharmacopoeia, but nonetheless potent. You mean that these tribesmen have a drug that could slow the life processes to that incredibly slow tempo? Ferris asked this skeptically. One that modern science doesn't know about? Why is that so strange? Remember, monsieur, that a century ago an old peasant woman in England was curing heart disease with a foxglove before a physician studied her cure and discovered digitalis. But why on earth would even a Laotian tribesman want to live so much slower? Ferris demanded. Because, Biro answered, they believe that in that state they can commune with something vastly greater than themselves. Lise interrupted. Monsieur Ferris must be very weary, and his bed is ready. Ferris saw the nervous fear in her face and realized that she wanted to end this conversation. He wondered about Biro before he dropped off to sleep. There was something odd about that chap. He'd been too excited about this Hunadi business. Yet, that was weird enough to upset anyone. That incredible and uncanny slowing down of a human being's life tempo. To commune with something vastly greater than themselves, Vero had said. What gods were so strange that a man had to live a hundred times slower than normal to commune with them? The next morning he breakfasted with Lise on the broad veranda. The girl told him that her brother had already gone out. He will take you little today to the tribal village down in the valley to arrange for your workers. Ferris noted the faint unhappiness still in her face. She looked silently at the great green ocean of forest that stretched away below the plateau on whose slope they were. You don't like this forest, he ventured. I hate it, she said. It smothers one here. Why, he asked, didn't she leave? The girl shrugged. I shall soon. It is useless to stay. André will not go back with me. She explained. He has been here five years too long. When he didn't return to France, I came out to bring him. But he will not go back. He has ties here now. Again, she became abruptly silent. Ferris discreetly refrained from asking her what ties she meant. There might be an Anamese woman in the background, though Biro didn't look like that type. The day settled down to the job of being stickily tropical, and the hot, still hours of the morning wore on. Ferris, sprawling in a chair and getting a welcome rest, waited for Biro to return. But he did not. And as the afternoon waned, Lise looked more and more worried. An hour before sunset, she came out onto the veranda, dressed in slacks and jacket. I'm going down to the village. I will be back soon, she told Ferris. She was a poor liar. Ferris got to his feet. You're going after your brother. Where is he? Distress and doubt struggled in her face. She remained silent. Believe me, I want to be your friend, Ferris said quietly. Your brother is mixed up in something here, isn't he? She nodded, white-faced. It is why he wouldn't go back to France with me, 
he can't bring himself to leave. It's like a horrible, fascinating vice. What is? She shook her head. I cannot tell you. Please wait here. He watched her leave and then realized she was not going down the slope, but up it, toward the top of the forested plateau. He caught up to her in quick strides. You can't go into that forest alone, in a blind search for him. It is not a blind search. I think I know where he is, Lise whispered. But you should not go there. The tribesmen would not like it. Ferris instantly understood. That big grove on the top of the plateau, where we found the Hunadi natives, is that it? Her unhappy silence was answer enough. Go back to the bungalow, he told her. I'll find him. She would not do that. Ferris shrugged and started forward. Fine, then we'll go together. She hesitated and then came on. They went up the slope of the plateau, through the forest. The westering sun sent spears and arrows of burning gold through chinks in the vast canopy of foliage under which they walked. The solid green of the forest breathed a rank, hot exhalation. Even the birds and monkeys were stifled quiet at this hour. Barone mixed up in that queer Hunati rite? Ferris asked. Lise looked up as though to utter a quick denial, but then dropped her eyes. Yes, in a way. His passion for botany has got him interested in it. And now he's involved. Ferris was puzzled. Why should botanical interest draw a man to that crazy drug ride or whatever it is? She wouldn't answer that. She walked in silence until they reached the top of the forested plateau. Then she spoke in a whisper. We must be quiet now. It would be bad if we are seen here. The grove that covered the plateau was pierced by horizontal bars of red sunset light. The great silk cottons and ficus trees were pillars supporting a vast cathedral nave of darkening green. A little way ahead loomed up those huge monster banyans he had glimpsed before in the moonlight. They dwarfed all the rest, towering bulks that were infinitely ancient and infinitely majestic. Fair suddenly saw Laotian tribesmen, a small brown figure in the brush ten yards ahead of him. There were two others farther in the distance. They were all standing quite still, facing away from him. They were Hunadi, he now knew, and that queer state of slowed-down life, that incredible retardation of the vital processes. Ferris felt a chill. He muttered over his shoulder, You better go back down and wait. No, she whispered. There is André. He turned startled. Then he too saw Barreau, his blonde hair bare, his face set and white and mask-like, standing frozen beneath a big wild fig a hundred feet to the right. Hunadi. Ferris had expected it, but that didn't make it less shocking. It wasn't that the tribesmen mattered less as human beings. It was just that he had talked to a normal Barreau only a few hours before. And now, to see him like this? Barreau stood in a position ludicrously reminiscent of the old-time living statues. One foot was slightly raised, his body bent a little forward, his arms raised a little. Like the frozen tribesmen ahead, 
Barreau was facing toward the inner recesses of the grove, where the giant banyans loomed. Ferris touched his arm. Barreau, you gotta snap out of this. It is no use to speak to him, whispered the girl. He cannot hear you. No, he couldn't hear. He was living at a tempo so slow that no ordinary sound could make sense to his ears. His face was a rigid mask, his lips slightly parted to breathe, eyes fixed ahead. Slowly, slowly, the lids crept down and veiled those staring eyes, and then crept open again in the infinitely slow wink. Slowly, slowly, his slightly raised left foot moved down toward the ground. Movement, pulse, breathing, all a hundred times slower than normal. Living, but not in a human way. Not in a human way at all. Lise was not so stunned as Ferris was. He realized later that she must have seen her brother like this before. We must take him back to the bungalow somehow, she murmured. I cannot let him stay out here for many days and nights again. Ferris welcomed the small practical problem that took his thoughts for a moment away from this frozen standing horror. Well, we can rig a stretcher from our jackets. I'll cut a couple of poles, he said. The two bamboos through the sleeve of the two jackets made a makeshift stretcher, which they laid upon the ground. Ferris lifted Barreau. The man's body was rigid, muscles locked in an effort no less strong because it was infinitely slow. He got the young Frenchman down on the stretcher and then looked at the girl. Can you help me carry him, or will you get a native? She shook her head. The tribesmen mustn't know of these. Andre isn't heavy. He wasn't. He was light as though he was wasted by fever though the sickened Ferris knew that it wasn't any fever that had done it. Why should a civilized young botanist go out into the forest and partake of a filthy, primitive drug of some kind that slowed him down to a frozen stupor? It didn't make any sense. Lise bore her share of their living burden through the gathering twilight in stolid silence. Even when they put Barreau down at intervals to rest, she did not speak. It was not until they reached the dark bungalow and had put him down on his bed that the girl sank into a chair and buried her face in her hands. Ferris spoke with a rough encouragement he did not feel. Well, don't get upset. He'll be all right now. I'll soon bring him out of this. She shook her head. No, no, you must not attempt that. He must come out of it by himself, but it will take many days. The devil it will, Ferris thought. He had teak to find and needed Barreau to arrange for workers. Then the dejection of the girl's small figure got him. He patted her shoulder. All right, I'll help you take care of him, and together we'll pound some sense into him and make him go back home. Now you see about dinner. She lit a gasoline lamp and went out. He heard her calling the servants. He looked down at Barreau. He felt a little sick again. The Frenchman lay, eyes staring toward the ceiling. He was living, breathing, and yet his retarded life tempo cut him off from Ferris as effectually as death would. No, not quite. Slowly, 
so slowly that he could hardly detect the movement. Barreau's eyes turned toward Ferris's figure. Lise came back into the room. She was quiet, but he was getting to know her better, and he knew by her face that she was startled. The servants are gone. Ella and the girls and your guide. They must have seen us bring André in. Ferris understood. They left because we brought back a man who's who naughty. She nodded. All the tribesmen feel the rat. It said there's only a few who belong to it, but they're dreaded. Ferris spared a moment to softly curse the vanished enemies. Piang would bolt like a scared rabbit, something like this. Sweet beginning for my job here. Perhaps you had better leave, Lee said uncertainly. Then she added contradictorily, No, no, I, I can't be heroic about it. Please stay. Well, that's for sure, he told her. I can't go back down the river and report that I shirked my job because of... He stopped. She wasn't listening to him. She was looking past him toward the bed. Ferris swung around. While the two had been talking, Verreau had been moving, infinitely slowly, but moving. His feet were on the floor now. He was getting up, his body straightened with a painful, dragging slowness for many minutes. Then his right foot began to rise almost imperceptibly from the floor. He was starting to walk, only a hundred times slower than normal. He was starting to walk toward the door. Lisa's eyes had a yearning pity in them. He's trying to go back up to the forest. He would try so long as he is Hunati. Ferris gently lifted Barreau back to the bed. He felt a cold dampness on his forehead. What was there up there that drew worshippers in a strange trance of slowed-down life? Chapter 3 Unholy Lure He turned to the girl and asked, how long will he stay in this condition? A long time, she answered heavily. It may take weeks for the Kunate to wear off. Ferris didn't like the prospect, but there was nothing he could do about it. All right, we'll take care of him, you and I. One of us will have to watch him all the time. He will keep trying to go back to the forest. Well, you've had enough for a while, Ferris told her. I'll watch him tonight. And Ferris did. And he watched not only that night, but for many nights. The days went into weeks, and the natives still shunned the house, and he saw nobody except the pale girl and the man who was living in a different way than other humans lived. Barreau didn't change. He didn't seem to sleep, nor did he seem to need food or drink. His eyes never closed, except in that infinitely slow blinking. He didn't sleep and he didn't quit moving. He was always moving, only it was in that weird, utterly slow-motion tempo that one could hardly see. Lise had been right. Verreau wanted to go back to the forest. He might be living a hundred times slower than normal, but he was obviously still conscious in some weird way, and still trying to go back to the hushed, forbidden forest up there where they had found him. Ferris wearied of lifting the statue-like figure back into the bed, and with the girl's permission tied Biro's ankles. 
It did not make things much better. It was even more upsetting, in a way, to sit in the lamplit bedroom and watch Burroughs slow struggles for freedom. The dragging slowness of each tiny movement made Ferris's nerves twitch to see. He wished he could give Moreau some sedative to keep him asleep, but he did not dare to do that. He had found on Moreau's forearm a tiny incision stained with sticky green. There were scars of other old incisions near it. Whatever crazy drug had been injected into the man to make him Hunati was unknown. Ferris did not dare try to counteract its effects. Finally, Ferris glanced up one night from his bored perusal of an old l'illustration and then jumped to his feet. Moreau still lay on the bed, but he had just winked, had winked with normal quickness and not that slow, dragging blink. Moreau, Ferris said quickly, are you all right now? Can you hear me? Moreau looked up at him with a level, unfriendly gaze. I can hear you. May I ask why you meddled? It took Ferris aback. He'd been playing nurse for so long he had unconsciously come to think of the other as a sick man who would be grateful to him. He realized now that Barreau was coldly angry and not grateful at all. The Frenchman was untying his ankles. His movements were shaky, his hands trembling, but he stood up normally. Well? he asked. Ferris shrugged. Your sister was going up there after you. I helped her bring you back, that's all. Barreau looked a little startled. Lise did that, but it's a breaking of the right. It can mean trouble for her. Resentment and raw nerves made Ferris suddenly brutal. Why should you worry about Lise now, when you've made her wretched for months by your dabbling in native wizardries? Barreau didn't retort angrily as he had expected. The young Frenchman answered heavily. It's true. I've done that to Lise. Ferris exclaimed. Moreau, why do you do it? Why this unholy business of going Hunati, of living a hundred times slower? What can you gain by it? The other man looked at him with haggard eyes. By doing it, I've entered an alien world. A world that exists around us all our lives, but that we never live in or understand at all. What world? The world of green leaf and root and branch, Barrow answered. The world of plant life, which we can never comprehend because of the difference between its life tempo and our life tempo. Ferris began dimly to understand. You mean this Hunati change makes you live at the same tempo as plants? Barrow nodded. Yes, and that simple difference in life tempo is the doorway into an unknown, incredible world. But how? The Frenchman pointed to the half-healed incision on his bare arm. The drug does it. A native drug that slows down metabolism, heart action, respiration, nerve messages, everything. Chlorophyll is its basis. The green blood of plant life. A complex chemical that enables plants to take their energy directly from the sun. The natives prepare it directly from grasses by some method of their own. I shouldn't think, Ferris said incredulously, that chlorophyll could have any effect on an animal organism. You're saying that, 
very well retorted, shows that your biochemical knowledge is out of date. Back in March of 1948, two Chicago chemists engaged in mass production and extraction of chlorophyll, announced that their injection of it into dogs and rats seemed to prolong life greatly by altering the oxidation capacity of the cells. Prolong life greatly, yes, but it prolongs it by slowing it down. A tree lives longer than a man because it doesn't live so fast. You can make a man live as long and as slowly as a tree by injecting the right chlorophyll compound into his blood. Ferris said, That's what you meant by saying that primitive peoples sometimes anticipate modern scientific discoveries? Barrow nodded. This chlorophyll hudnati solution may be an age-old secret. I believe it's always been known to a few among the primitive forest folk of the world. He looked somberly past the American. Tree worship is as old as the human race, the sacred tree of Sumeria, the groves of Dordana, the oaks of the Druids, the tree Yggdrasil of the Norse, even our own Christmas tree. They all stem from primitive worship of that other alien kind of life with which we share our earth. I think that a few secret worshippers have always known how to prepare the chlorophyll drug that enabled them to attain complete communion with that other kind of life by living at the same slow rate for a time. Ferris stared. But how did you get taken into this queer secret worship? The other man shrugged. The worshippers were grateful to me because I had saved the forests here from possible death. He walked across to the corner of the room that was fitted as a botanical laboratory and took down a test tube. It was filled with dusty, tiny spores of a leprous gray-green color. This is the Burmese blight that's withered whole great forests down south of the Mekong, a deadly thing to tropical trees. It was starting to work up here into this Laos country, but I showed the tribes how to stop it. The secret Hunati sect made me one of them in reward. But I still can't understand why an educated man like you would want to join such a crazy mumbo-jumbo, Ferris said. Mon Dieu, I'm trying to make you understand why, to show you that it was my curiosity as a botanist that made me join the right and take the drug. Perrault rushed on. But you cannot understand any more than Lys could. You can't comprehend the wonder and strangeness and beauty of living that other kind of life. Something in Barreau's white-wrapped face and his haunted eyes make Ferris's skin crawl. His words seem momentarily to lift a veil, to make the familiar vaguely strange and terrifying. Barreau, listen. You've got to cut this stuff out and leave here at once. The Frenchman smiled mirthlessly. I know. Many times I have told myself so, but I do not go. How could I leave behind something that is a pot in this heaven? Lise had come into the room and was looking wanly at her brother's face. Andre, won't you give it up and go home with me? She appealed. Or are you too sunken in this uncanny habit to care whether your sister breaks her heart? Ferris demanded. Biro flared. You're such a smug pair. You treat me like a drug addict, knowing the wonder of the experience I've had. 
I've got into another world, an alien earth that is around us every day of our lives and that we can't even see. And I'm going back again and again. You're going to use that chlorophyll drug and go Hunati again, Ferris said grimly. Barone nodded defiantly. No, you're not, Ferris said. For if you do, we'll just go out there and bring you back again. You'll be quite helpless to prevent us once you're Hunati. The other man raged. There's a way I can stop you from doing that. Your threats are dangerous. There's no way, Ferris said flatly. Once you've frozen yourself into that slower life tempo, you're helpless against normal people. And I'm not threatening. I'm trying to save your sanity here, man. Burrow flung out of the room without answer. Lise looked at the American, tears glimmering in her eyes. Don't worry about it, he assured her. He'll get over it in time. I feel not. It has become a madness in his brain. Inwardly, Ferris agreed, whatever the lure of the unknown world that Barreau had entered by that change in life tempo, it had caught him beyond all redemption. A chill swept Ferris when he thought of it. Men out there, living at the same tempo as plants, stepping clear out of the plane of animal life to a strangely different kind of life and world. The bungalow was oppressively silent that day. The servants gone. Barreau sulking in his laboratory. Lise moving about with misery in her eyes. But Barreau didn't try to go out, though Ferris had been expecting that and had been prepared for a clash. And by evening, Barreau seemed to have got over his sulks. He helped prepare dinner. He was almost gay at the meal, a febrile good humor that Ferris didn't quite like. By common consent, none of the three spoke of what was uppermost in their minds. Barrow retired, and Ferris told Lise, Go to bed. You've lost so much sleep lately, you're half asleep now. I'll keep watch. In his own room, Ferris found drowsiness assailing him, too. He sank back in a chair, fighting the heaviness that weighed down on his eyelids. Then suddenly, he understood... Drugged, he exclaimed, and found his voice little more than a whisper. Something in the dinner. Yes, said a remote voice. Yes, Mr. Ferris. Barreau had come in. He loomed gigantic to Ferris's blurred eyes. He came closer, and Ferris saw in his hand a needle that dripped sticky green. I'm sorry, Ferris. He was rolling up Ferris's sleeve, and Ferris could not resist. I'm sorry to do this to you, niece, but you would interfere, and this is the only way I can keep you from bringing me back. Ferris felt the sting of the needle. He felt nothing more before drugged and consciousness claimed him.